Great. All right. Wow. It is wonderful to be here. Listen, I have not been here. Have I been here 24 hours? Not yet. And I already love this church, and I love your pastor. I just went to the missions banquet last night, and I was so blessed by what he had to say and just the spirit here. So thank you for letting me kick off, I guess, the missions conference. And speaking of football, okay, I have grown up all over. My dad was an FBI. I was born in Chicago. We fought the mafia. Chicago, Las Vegas, some of these places, New Mexico, the drug connection, all that. Been in ministry around the U.S., but I am a lifelong, I hope this is okay with you, I'm a lifelong Green Bay Packer fan. Actually, all of the Doyles are. Wherever you go around the country, we were Green Bay Packer fans, which was really hard because when I lived in Colorado Springs, I used to do chapels for the Denver Broncos. And I love them. One of, one of them is on our staff now. Jason Elam used to be the kicker, and he works in Israel with us. And so we had a dilemma. One night I took Joel Rosenberg. I don't know if you know Joel, but he's a writer and writes great things on the Middle East to the Packer-Bronco game. And we did the chapel, and privately, I am just pulling for the Packers, right? And it's crazy. We went in the stadium, and easily half of the stadium was Green Bay Packer fans. I, I couldn't believe it. And so I got to see all of that, and that was cool. So it's an honor to be with you, like Pastor said. And I'm looking for the clock. Where is it? Well, I got my watch here. So um, we, um, I was a pastor for 20 years and uh, loved it. Never thought I was going anywhere. And God called us two months, three months before 9-11 into the mission field to leave and go do it. And, um, and then 9-11 happens and everything changed. But I just want to tell you a couple of things. What you see, the physical war you see on the ground and in the Middle East, and which is spreading to the world, that physical war is merely a reflection of the spiritual war raging in the heavenlies. That's what this is about. There's eternal struggle for the souls of men and women. One-fifth of the globe is Islamic. And uh, soon to be one-fourth is the largest hunk of unreached people group in the world. 86% of Muslims around the world don't know one believer. So Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, but something needs to happen there more. And so I think, hence, maybe just the heart of God. That's why the dream started happening. And I went to a seminary that said that these things didn't happen anymore. So I wasn't looking for it, but man, it happened. So before we have to tell you a little of the bad news, because we have to, we're going to tell you good news. So here's our opener, okay? More Muslims have come to faith in Christ in the last 10 years than in the last 1400 years of Islam. Yeah. So we went into missions and we thought we'd work with the Jews in Israel and we do, but there's 6 million of them in the Middle East and there's like 400 million Muslims. And so the greater work has been with them, but we all know about Jews being blinded and the veil and all that's happening there that keeps them from Christ. But in the last 20 years, more Jews in Israel have come to believe in Yeshua HaMashiach than in the last 2,000 years of Christianity. Is that amazing? Okay. 
So, I knew a friend that lived in Israel in the late 50s, 1950s. He knew of four small families that believed Jesus was the Messiah, and they're living in Israel. Is that bizarre? Now there's 25,000 Jewish believers in Israel. That's great. But when you think about the Middle East, think of this. It is the Alpha and Omega of missions. It started there. The Great Commission is working. If it wasn't, we would never even be here today. We'd be home eating a bagel, getting ready for the Packer game, right? We wouldn't care. But it's working. But it's such a dearth of salvations in the Middle East. But as we're entering these last days, God is shaking it up in the Middle East. It's amazing. So do you guys get tired of the bad news on TV? Man, is that a steady stream of just pollution to the mind? So um, uh, we really, uh, I think we got to say this right off the start. Let's stop taking our worldview from the news. Okay, let's stop taking our worldview from whatever you watch, CNN, Fox, whatever. Let's stop because it's run by the entertainment industry and they have to get you in breaking news. You got to watch this. Got to watch this. I'm not here to minimize terrorism because we've almost been killed. I could list the different times. It's real. Islamic terrorism is real. Here's what I think. Blowing the cover before we get in the sermon. More Muslims have come to faith in the last 10 years than in the last 1,400 years of Islam. You know what I think? I think Satan is using the news to keep us away from Muslims. Because if we're afraid of them or we hate them, we're certainly not going to have God's heart, right? And so let's keep them away. They're open. We may lose some of them. And, and, uh, and that's his gig. That's what he's doing. And so many people are overdosing on the news. In fact, I just finished a book, and it's called Standing in the Fire, Courageous Christians Living in Frightening Times. And it comes out Easter, but it's about our friends in the Middle East that live in faith and are passionate and have joy. They're not worried about the government. They're not obsessed over over the election. They probably don't even have an election in their country. They are focusing on Jesus. And so uh, that, that will really encourage you. It's no time to live in fear. But we got to hear the truth. And the truth is there's a lot of good news in the Middle East. So uh, years ago in 2001, when God called us into missions, a couple months before that, my son Josh, who was 12, and I ran a marathon together, the LA Marathon. I had never run a marathon. I played basketball and baseball. I was short sprints, didn't do long. But he, there was a little girl in his class that had cancer, and they did a fundraiser for her. And the principal of the school ran marathons. And he said, we can train and in four months you can run 26.2 miles and it will change your life because when you get to hard places in life you'll look back and say I can do this I ran a marathon you know so anyway we go to this big meeting and the principal's pumping everybody up we're going to go we're going to run the marathon and he shows videos and all that we're going to do this for our little friend Sarah and then he says in front of the whole school, so who's in? Who's going to run the marathon? And my son Josh says, I am, and I want my dad to join me. <laughs> Boy, wasn't expecting that. So we did, and I mean, I couldn't even run a mile, jumped into the training four months. We lived in Colorado, 7,500 feet. We're going to run in L.A., that's like zero feet, you know, right on the coast. And so that's a good thing. You can breathe there. Well, we took off and ran 
And uh, how many of you have done a marathon? Do we have anybody here? Okay, there's something kind of mystical that can happen. You don't know when it's coming, but it could come, may not come. But if it does, man, you're going to smack into it. It's the wall where you just run out of, you have no energy. That's it. And we're past mile 24. We can hear people cheering in downtown LA. We're coming in and Josh looks at me, 12 years old and goes, dad, I can't go any farther. My legs are locked. They're like cement pillars, thunder thighs. I can't move them. I don't know what happened. I said, well, Josh, we'll just walk it. And he said, I'm in so much pain, Dad. I, I, I can't do it. And he's just kind of going like this. We're coming around a corner, big skyscrapers in L.A. And I said, well, let, let's just see if we can just inch our way. I just don't think I could do it. We come around the corner, all these big buildings, Sony Trinitron on one of them. And there's two spotters, an announcer and a spotter. And they're looking at people as they're coming to finish because you got about the last mile to go. And a guy in binoculars looking at numbers on runners and saying, hey, there's Fred Smith and this is his 10th marathon, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And and so 25,000 runners out of all the people there, we hear the announcer say, look, there's Josh Doyle for Monument, Colorado. He's only 12 years old and this is his first marathon. And the crowd goes, like that. And I went, Josh, what are the chances of that, that they would pick you out of 25,000? I can't believe it. But he wasn't there. He was sprinting. (laughs) He took off and he is sprinting. And I ran up to him and I caught him finally after it took, he was sprinting, not jogging. He is just going for it. And I'm, Josh, what happened? You, the cement pillars, he goes, I think the Lord healed me. I I don't know. (laughs) Something happened, you know? But what is it with encouragement? Doesn't it just bless your soul? So listen, I want to tell you a couple things today. We're not losing around the world, Christians. The body of Christ is expanding faster than ever. And Muslims are falling in love with Jesus. That is the good news. We're going to flip through some slides to show you the bad news. Then we get back to the good news, okay? We'll go quickly because we know a lot of this just doesn't make sense in the Middle East, okay? This is one of our finest hours. Okay, next one, if we could. This is Hamas. As they started, this is their charter, the blood of Jews. This is what we want. This is who? the UN and everybody's calling Israel to negotiate with. This has not changed. It's pretty hard. Next one, if you would. Uh, When kidnapped, Israelis were kidnapped and killed. They said, we celebrate this. We want to do this again. This is the leader of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Next one, if you would. These are the rockets. They used to be able to hit just outside of the Gaza Strip, maybe 15 miles. Now they can hit every spot in Israel. Next one, if you would. Thanks. Uh, rockets in a town that was just one week of rockets in a city close to the Gaza Strip. And there's one that didn't explode. Okay. Next one, if you would, please. Under Hamas, no one is safe in Gaza. That is for sure. Next one, if you would. This is typical. We go in there a lot. The way that people live is just, it's horrifying. Uh, when, when you see what they have to go through. Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Next one, if you would, please. Thank you. Oh, man, I went into a, a restaurant in the Gaza Strip, okay? So you know where that is. Southwest corner of Israel. Palestinians. Hamas ruling it. And this is what they had in the restaurant. Uh, Yasser Arafat, that was the chairman of the, the Palestinian Authority. George Habash, that was 
po- uh, popular front for the people's liberation of Palestine. Uh, Ramadan Shalom, Islamic Jihad, and then Sheikh Yassin was Hamas, their spiritual leader, whatever that means. These guys are terrorists. Man, I walked in this restaurant and I thought, this is like a terrorist Mount Rushmore. It's bizarre. These are the heroes. There's so much anger and envy toward Israel. This is, this is their Michael Jordans. This is their Aaron Rodgers. This is who they revere. Okay, next one, if you would. What is this, guys? Actually not. This is in southern Lebanon. And Iran constructed this as you are looking into Israel. This is the last thing they want is for the terrorists called Hezbollah. Have you heard of Hezbollah? As they look into Israel, they want them to see this. They don't want northern Israel. What's the battle for? Jerusalem. We're going to take Jerusalem. And this is what they're saying. Keep your eyes on this. This is where we're going. This is what we plan to do. There's an Iranian flag on the top. Okay, next one, if you would. This is, how did all this junk happen? Ottoman Empire is just an empire, okay, for 400 years. Next one, if you would. And then it broke up during World War I. The Turks lost, and so all of a sudden, identities, national countries came about. Sudan, Iran, 79, Iraq in the 30s, and, and national identities as nations were carved out. The British and the French were involved in this. Winston Churchill said this. He was a part of it. He said, on a Sunday afternoon... With a cup of tea and a map and a pencil, I created three nations. And so that's what happened. Okay, next one, if you would. But Iran said, we don't want that. We want an empire. And these are the Shiites in Iran. This is kind of the home base for Shiite Islam. The Ayatollah, the first one, the Ayatollah now that's ruling. Okay, next one, if you would. So that's the Shiites. But then it rose up out of the Sunnis. So you have the Shiites and the Sunnis, two major sects within Islam. The caliphate, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and he said, I'm the new leader. I'm the ruler of all Islam. Next one, if you would. This is his cabinet. Man, this is like a who's who of terrorism throughout the Middle East. No political experience. A lot of experience with terrorism, okay? That's the Islamic State. Next one, if you would. So it could, what we have now is three Iraqs. You have the Sunni side on the left, the Shiite side on the right, and then the disputed territory. Maybe the Kurds will get it. It's an absolute mess. Next one, if you would, please. Thank you. It could be this, a Sunni state, Shiite. You see all that? And that would include Iran and the Sunnis. It may break into two. They're shooting for no national identities, just an Islamic empire. Next one, if you would. Have you guys seen this, the Arabic noon? This is what was spray painted on the homes of believers in Mosul, Iraq. Okay? How many of you heard about the ISIS pushed the Christians out of out of Mosul? Okay, next one if you would. Here's what happened. They came in, they burned the churches to the ground. They said, no Christians allowed. Next one, if you would, please. And they gave them four options. Christians that had lived there for 19 centuries, they said, number one, convert to Islam. Number two, pay a tax and we'll protect you, something they couldn't afford. Three, leave, or four, die. And they chose to leave. Everything was taken from them, even baby diapers, wedding rings. They left with nothing. And so there are Christian refugees, and now it's finally been declared genocide coming out of Iraq. If you would, next one, please. 
So a third symbol has emerged. Think about this, guys. For 2,000 years, we've had the cross and the fish. This is the Arabic noon, the Arabic letter for N. You know what that stands for? Nazarene. Literally in Arabic, of the Nazarene. You know what, guys? We're of the Nazarene. We follow Jesus, the Nazarene. We have a third symbol, and it came out of persecution. Next one, if you would. Syrian refugee women studying the Bible. Listen, there's a great open opportunity with them. Next one, if you would. Uh, today, more Muslims are coming to faith. It's my, that's my wife, Joanne, on the right. Not in the burqa, okay? That's her on the right. She's Italian dynamo. If, if there is a next time, if I don't blow it today, I'd like to have her back with me. Okay, sometime. Okay, next one. This is what happened. The persecuted Christians were thrown out of Mosul. So they ended up in another area in tents. The UN came and gave them tents. You talk about brave. You know what they did? They went out and got spray paint cans and painted this on their tent saying, hey, we're still here. We still love Jesus. You're not taking that away. Okay, next one. Uh, Mosul children. These are just darling little kids that have nothing. They've driven out of their homes. Okay, next one. I think this is the last one. Ooh, the martyrs in Libya. Wow. We will talk about that in a little bit. You probably saw that on the ISIS, and then they were from Egypt. Okay, next one. These are some of the uh, widows and what we learned from them. Let's just do this next picture. I think it's Takiya, 20-year-old widow. We'll talk to you about her. Next one, if you would. Let's see. This is her husband. She showed it to us on her cell phone saying, this is my husband. And he was leading worship as they went to death for Jesus. He was singing. Next one, if you would. This is a former secret police on the right from Syria that's come to faith in Christ, on fire, passionate for the Lord. Take your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 1. And really, this church in Thessalonica reminds me of persecuted believers today. They're very similar. Uh, They really are. And um, um, we'll read verses 4 and 5, okay? First Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. And you know how we lived among you for your sake. And so the gospel in Thessalonica just burst on the scene. And Paul was there for three Sabbaths And he went into the synagogue. Three Shabbats, he's in the synagogue. And Jews are coming to faith in Christ. And officials are upset. And a riot breaks out. And man, this is typical of what happens with Paul. And they were willing to suffer, these brand new baby believers in Jesus. The gospel never comes in quietly. It just doesn't. So I have this friend, and he lives in Iraq. His name is Michael. He used to drive a tank for Saddam Hussein during the first Gulf War. Then he got saved. And God just lit up his light, and his life was just a living testimony, unafraid. Even during the second Gulf War, he's sharing Jesus. So Michael just shares the gospel with everything that moves. He's just, that's him. So he, I mean, you can tell me you're a believer. I've known Jesus for 30 years. He will check you out. He wants to make sure, right? You're either in or out, no lukewarm. 
And so um, Michael is telling everyone about his faith. He grew up next to a Muslim man named Hisham. And Hisham is getting an earful from Michael every day as they're serving in the military. Michael has to go. He doesn't want to serve Saddam, but they'll blow his brains out if he doesn't, so he's there. He's trying to bring peace in the midst of war. And he's talking with Hisham. And it ends up the war ends, Iraq loses, and Hasham finally says, Michael, I mean, I get it that you're a believer and you love Jesus, but uh, I'm sick of this. And I, every time we talk, you turn the conversation to Jesus. And it's, I mean, this is getting old, Michael, seriously. I mean, we'll talk about the weather and soon it's on Jesus. And I'm, I'm tired of it. So give me a Bible. I'll take the New Testament and I'll read it. I'm a Muslim and I'm going to show you where the mistakes are. And then I'll talk to you about converting to Islam. Okay, so give me a Bible. I'm going to read it and I'll get back to you in about a month. And Michael says, okay. So he gives him a New Testament, Arabic New Testament. And Hisham takes it. And about three weeks later, he calls Michael. It's late at night. Michael answers the phone and Hisham says, Michael, this is Hisham. I have a big problem. And he goes, oh, okay, what's the problem? He goes, I read the whole New Testament. And he said, well, that's a good thing. He goes, yeah, but here's my problem. I think I'm falling in love with Jesus. (laughs) And he says, okay, that's good. And he goes, but you know what? I'm going to read the Old Testament because the Jews are so clever. And I know they wrote this and I'm sure they changed things. So I'm going to find the mistakes. I'll get back to you. It's bigger. I've heard the Old Testament. So give me a couple of months and I'll get back to you. And we'll talk about Islam. He said, okay, great. So he gives them Old Testament. He takes off and it's less than two months later. Again, it's late at night. Michael gets the call. Hisham, uh, this is Hisham. I got a big problem. And he goes, what's the problem? He goes, you know, the Jews could not have written the Old Testament on their own. God had to write it with them. He goes, really? Okay, why do you say that? And he goes, if the Jews had written it on their own, they would have made themselves look a whole lot better. (laughs) I think that's pretty wise. (laughs) He goes, it couldn't have been. And he said, and I'm smart enough to see verses that could only predate and predict that Jesus was the Messiah. Born in Bethlehem, in Micah, descended of David. The very words he would say on the cross in Isaiah 53. I had a big problem here because I'm Muslim and this is not allowed. So I'm going to pray and fast for 30 days and see if Jesus is God or not. He said, okay, man. So think about this. He's heard the gospel for two years, read the New Testament, read the Old Testament. Now he's praying and fasting for 30 days to see. And on night 26, Michael gets a call this time in the middle of the night. And it was Hisham. And he said, Michael, it's Hisham. I don't have any more problems. I don't have any more problems. He said, what do you mean? He said, it's Jesus. And he said, how do you know? And he said, he came to me tonight in a vision. He said, I was reading the Bible, and Jesus stood in front of me, smiling, loving, saying, come on, Michael. Come on, Hisham, follow me. Come follow me. I love you. I died for you. You know what Hisham does today? He's a pastor in Iraq. 
Can you believe that? He's an underground church pastor. You know what happened to him last summer? He got shot in the head by a terrorist group, but he survived. He is still there. If you want to scratch his name down, Hisham, H-I-S-H-A-M, preaching the gospel in Iraq, former Muslim, loves Jesus, death sentence over his head, but he is following Jesus. Well, you know, I didn't even think these things were possible. I mean, I didn't deny the power of Christ, but my view of Islam as I'd been in Israel and the Middle East before 2001, I just saw the bad side. And I had like an IV hooked up to the news. And I was watching too much Fox News, CNN, whatever. And all of a sudden you start to realize, wait a minute, Jesus is capable of anything, right? I mean, he said, upon this rock, what? I will build my church. I'm going to do it. And by the way, the gates of hell... They're flimsy. They're not going to stand against it. No way. So before I got a heart for Muslims, uh, I thought all of them were the enemy. And my dad was an FBI. Woo, you know? I mean, in my home growing up, you were guilty until proven innocent. He didn't, he didn't trust anyone, right? So I just had that. And I, so I, I go up to get my car that's being worked on in Denver. This is the 1990s, and it's not finished. They send me across the street to wait for it. And it's an Arabic restaurant. I've been to Israel. I love Middle Eastern food. So I'm just sitting there having a falafel and a Diet Pepsi. And two guys come in and sit in a table, probably this close, for this speaker and they're in black leather jackets, closely cropped beards, Arab, obviously, the olive skin, and they're whispering in Arabic next to me. They're whispering, but I can hear it's Arabic. Man, I mean, I'm an FBI kid. We know these things, right? These are terrorists. I mean, it's pretty obvious what they're doing here. State Capitol up the street, probably you know, hatching plans on how to blow it up later this week. And I'm kind of eavesdropping as I'm eating and drinking my diet Pepsi. And all of a sudden, one of them breaks into English and says it audibly. Wow, the Lord is amazing, isn't he? And I thought, man, I don't think I heard that right. And uh, a little more Arabic and then boom, breaks into English. The other one, Jesus is Lord over Syria. I, I, it just leapt out of my mouth. I said, are you guys, are, are you guys believers? And they said, yes, are you? <laughs> and I said, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I was before I came in here till I judged them as terrorists and little error there, Tom. No, they're brothers in Christ. Actually, whoa, God just blew my mind because of the look, right? They had the look. And one of the things they did, the closely cropped beard, was to be able to blend in in the Middle East and work safely in the underground church. God started to change my mind. And you know, this is what happened in Thessalonica. The gospel came in with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. It just burst onto the scene and set the city upside down on its ear. But problem number one, look at verse six. Verse six, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. 
with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Severe suffering connected to the joy of the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't make that connection, but they did. And this is the only time it's in the New Testament. And the question is this. Can young believers survive persecution? You know what? We don't survive persecution. We thrive in persecution. So I leave the pastorate. And it's June of 2001. And uh, September 11th happened, and people are going bonkers, like, what are you doing? You have six children. Are you responsible going to the Middle East? Are you kidding me? You're an American. You're a believer. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get killed. And, and, and one guy just said, you know, you're just stupid. For That is so stupid. And uh, that was my dad, of course, that said that. But <laughs> anyway, so that's his thing. But um, so we go a couple months after 9-11, and the first mission trip we go into is the Gaza Strip. And uh, I'm reading Voice of the Martyrs. Do you guys know Voice of the Martyrs? Yeah. So I'm reading the magazine, and, um, and I'm reading it on the airplane, and it says, the Gaza Strip is the most dangerous place on the planet for believers now. And I thought, dang it, couldn't I got this a week before? It's too late. You know, we're going. So we get there, and we're in Israel. We go into the Gaza Strip. And uh, we hadn't been there more than a few minutes in the city, and a woman walked up to me, and she was covered in black, completely head to toe, Muslim woman, and she walked up to me out of this massive crowd. There's one point, like seven million people and six miles wide, 25 miles long, and she grabbed my forearm. And I just was kind of shocked. Muslim women to talk to another man, let alone an American, not even a Muslim man, that's shocking. She grabbed my arm and she said, you're from America, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, I am. And she said, did you see on September 11th, and this was like two months later, um, the buildings come down. And then on CNN, they showed people celebrating and cheering And I said, yeah, I mean, I did see that. And she said, well, not me. That wasn't me. I was crying for those people. And they didn't deserve to die. And that was so wrong. I'm very sorry for America. And I'm sorry for you. She just said, please forgive us. She tapped her heart, turned on her heel and walked away. And I said, there's human beings in the Gaza Strip. You're kidding People created in the image of God. Lord, I just thought it was all terrorists. And so my friend Hussein is a young believer in the Lord, comes out of a Muslim background. And, and we meet together with the pastor and he goes, Tom, let's go down to Yasser Arafat's mosque. There was a bombing there. Israel, them have been fighting and the people are down. Let's go down to the mosque and we'll share Jesus. Okay. So this is, you know, day one as a missionary and I, okay, let's go. So we go and uh, Hussein, another guy, and there's people around us and they're talking and they're really interested. What's this dude from America? And you know, they're, it's a lot of interest, so it's drawing them in. You know, Jesus called us to be fishers of men. Sometimes we make great bait. You know, I don't know why, but anyway. So we're, we're there, and um, and it's good. And um, but Hussein just pulls me back my ear and says, "Hey, Tom, uh, you know, I just wanted to tell you we could get arrested for this. This is illegal. What we're doing, sharing the gospel. But you know, every Christian should go to jail at least once for being a believer, don't you think?" And yeah, so, okay, yeah, so, okay. So we're, we're talking, and it goes on and on, and then about 30 minutes later, the mood quickly changed because men with long beards, skull caps, white dish dashes show up, and they are angry, and they have a Quran in one hand, 
and they are pointing fingers. And these are the Islamic clerics, imams, sheikhs. And the friendly tone has changed. Those people left, and we're in a circle, and they're pointing and accusing and angry. And Hussein looks at me and pulls my ear back, and he goes, you know, if this really goes bad today, Tom, we could die for Jesus here. But they could kill us. They're angry. But I'm ready to die for Jesus. And, heck, you're a missionary. You're ready to die for Jesus, aren't you? And I said, yes. I mean, you know. I said, you mean today? Like today? Uh, you know, it was my first thought. Here's my first thought. What a short career. It's his first day on the field. Never heard from him again. And so, and so it ended up dissipating, but I thought about that. You know what? I got in a plane and come home. We go back and work with him. He lives there. He's targeted. So I want to say this to you. When you see the news, and if you have to get maybe your weekly fix or whatever, and you see the ticker tape going across, and you're going to see Iraq, and you're going to see Syria and Iran and Gaza, don't think about what's happening politically. Remember this. Change your thinking. Transform it. We have brothers and sisters in Christ there. There's underground churches there. There are underground churches in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. There are brothers and this is our family. So we need to pray for them. Can we survive persecution? Man, we don't survive it. We thrive. In 1979, the Ayatollah came in and, be, and Iran became the Islamic Republic of Iran. And you know, it was one of the things the Ayatollah said. Ayatollah means um, tool of God. He's the spiritual and political ruler of Iran. Okay, of Shiite Islam. And, and here's what he said. We're going to squash the church. We're going to level it. Everyone in Iran will be a Muslim. There will never be two religions in Iran again. We will annihilate the church. Well, when you try to do that, and by the way, if you look at the track record of nations that have tried to do that over 2,000 years, it hasn't worked out real well for them. And so the Ayatollah said, we're going to squash the church. But when you try to squash the church, it's like hitting your fist in water. It just sprays all over. We spread out. We get stronger. We come together in persecution. Fast forward to today. The fastest growing church per capita in the world right now is not in the USA. It's in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Total backfire. God took that little challenge. And, you know, it's one to two million believers. Some are saying as many as four million believers in Iran. And so we do not, um, we do not just survive. We thrive in it. Look at verse 7 here. And you became... Paul says, you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So they became a a model. The, I believe, persecuted believers are becoming the new face of genuine Christianity worldwide. Because they're willing to suffer. They're willing to die for Jesus. We have to ask ourselves these questions. Am I? Am I willing to suffer for Jesus? So we had an opportunity to go 
to uh, Egypt, and it blew my mind. Twenty of the martyr wives were um, from some villages. There was also another uh, man that died that was from uh, an African country. I can't remember. Anyway, but um, so we went and took 2,000 letters. We had a national uh, campaign of writing letters to the widows' wives in Egypt. We went village to village, delivered them. People wrote a verse, uh, encouragement, some love, sent it. We brought them in ribbons, brought them to the widows, and we met Takia. She was our first visit. You saw her up here, 20 years old, lost her husband. They were in Libya working the oil fields. They came back to try to go see their families on a holiday. Islamic State captured them at the Egyptian-Libyan border, took them away, and tortured them for 45 days. There were more than 21. There was actually over 100. And over 100 men converted to Islam to save their neck, but 21 of them said, we're not. We're not. We're not doing this. We serve Jesus. And so Takia said to me and my wife, Joanne, she said, how is it that I am so privileged to be married to someone that was willing to give their life to Jesus? I'm just an insignificant woman in a village. I don't even read. Nobody's heard of our village. The highest honor in the world is to die for Jesus. And my husband did that. I am a martyr's wife. It is so hard to be without him. But yet, on the other hand, he is with Jesus, and I'm so happy. And I thought, oh, Lord, that speaks to me. Because when I saw it on television, even as a missionary, I went, this is horrifying. I know what's coming. Islamic State's going to cut their heads off, and they did. But I want you to know, your brothers that died that day showed no fear. They were singing and worshiping the Lord as they went to be with him. And they also were praying. And the last words on all of their lips was Jesus. Jesus, I love you, Jesus. Jesus, forgive my killer. No anger, perfect peace. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on the... That's what they experienced. We can learn from those kind of people. We can sit at their feet, and we did. So uh, we have this book, Killing Christians. And if you haven't had a chance to, to read it, I pray that you will. Killing Christians, Living the Faith Where It's Not Safe to Believe. Our leader in Syria, his name is Farid. It was getting so bad in Syria during the war. First of all, half of Syria is gone out of their homes. There are cities that look like they've been bombed so much, they look like uh, Dresden, Germany during World War II after it got bombed to Smithers. Or, or Berlin. And, um, and so Fareed talked to his 10 leaders and said, listen, let's take a week and pray and fast to see if God wants each of you to stay here in Syria. Because you have wives, you have little kids, it's dangerous. One of these days we won't be able to get out. If God calls you to leave, it's all right. It's okay. We're not trying to be heroes. God can use you somewhere else. But we need to pray and fast and see Who's going to stay? So a week from today, come back if God told you to stay. So a week later, Fareed comes back and opens the door, secret passage going underneath the house. And as he had his hand on the doorknob, he thought, I wonder if anybody will even be in there. Seriously. I mean, how can you raise a family in Syria? Damascus a few months ago got bombed 92 times in one day. And people live there. How, how do you do that? And so he opened the door, and there weren't five of the leaders there. There weren't 10. There were 25. 
they'd gone out and recruited 15 more. Men that said, we're going to stay here in Syria because Jesus is the answer to the problems here. The only way that Alawites and Sunnis will reconcile is if they reconcile with the Father, right? It's the only way possible. And by the way, there's underground churches where the two of them that have come to faith in Christ are worshiping together in the middle of the night and washing each other's feet. Alawites, Sunnis in the street, they're blowing each other's heads off. And they're worshiping together. And you know what I think, guys? The UN can't pull that off. It's only Jesus, right? Only Jesus can do that. And so they come back, and 25 are going to stay. Jesus is the answer. We're going to stay here. And, and they make that commitment. They pull their money together because most of them are former Muslims or Alawites or Druze, different religion. There's no place for them to be buried. So they bought a plot of land so they can bury each other when they die for Jesus. And so we get communications from Farid. And he has to be cryptic in Syria. And he'll say, um, we have many new friends here. That means new believers. Uh, he is moving. Jesus is on the, on the move. And other good news. And the graveyard is still empty. God's sustaining them. Nobody has died. Farid recently had 30 death threats. I said... 30? How do you know you have 30? And he goes, oh, they spray painted them on the front of my house and numbered them. We'll kill you this way. This is what we're going to do to your wife. This is what we're going to do to your family. This is the reality of what they live in. Persecuted believers are a model for all of us. So when you look at persecution, it's easy because we've got idolatrous worship here. And I've had to confess that. You know what our idols are in America? We worship two gods, comfort and safety. Comfort and safety. Man, I'm, I'm guilty. I mean, every time I get on a plane to go to Israel, Jordan, wherever, people say, aren't you afraid to go to the Middle East? And I just play along with them. I say, I am. I am so afraid to go to the Middle East. But after I get out of the Chicago airport, I'm relieved, you know. <laughs> hey, it's dangerous here, right? Man, it sure is. And so, so um, comfort and safety, are, are we willing to give that up? And so I saw the 21 being marched on the beach. And I saw it on CNN. I remember thinking, oh, my gosh. But then God got a grip on my mind, and I took that thought captive, like Paul says to you, and my mind went to Revelation 12, 11, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their life more than death. And let me tell you this, tortured for 45 days, the Islamic state threw everything they could at those 21 men. They didn't bend. They didn't break. They didn't convert to Islam. I think Jesus is thrilled with that. And he took them home. And we should be too. It's hard. It's difficult to see that. But it happened. And it's a victory for the Lord. Verses 8 through 10. And the message rang out from Thessalonica. Verses 8 through 10. Uh, let's see, where's 8? The Lord's message rang out. Not only uh, in Macedonia and Ki, your faith has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
So what does all this have to do with me? Man, he works in the Middle East and there's Muslims. Listen, the Muslims are coming. The Muslims are coming. The Muslims are here. And they're not leaving. Do you know it's the largest Muslim state in, Amer- in America now? It's Texas. It's not Michigan. Dearborn, Michigan and all They're moving all over. They are here. And if we are afraid of them or if we hate them, we certainly do not have God's heart. So let's look at this video. Uh, My wife, Joanne, wanted to address that with women. And it's a ministry that we've launched called Not Forgotten. So I want you to see this. And we do women's events around America and around the Middle East. Maybe we can have one here sometime and show you what you can do to reach out to, to Muslim women. Okay, can we show that? That'd be great. Thanks. Life in Islam is very hard for Muslim women. There's no love and acceptance and mercy and grace. That's why they go to the mosque. They pray five times a day. They fast. They do everything they know right to do. But Muslims are dying every day without knowing the true Jesus. So when you look at a Muslim, consider this, that they are blinded. They have not seen the true light of Jesus. God has come to set them free and to put love in them. If you can reach them with the gospel message, you can change their life. You can give them hope for their dying soul. My view of Muslim women before Not Forgotten was uh, they don't want you to come near them. That's why they have that burqa on. Stay away. When I just saw them in their burqa, I just thought of them as very radical. At first, I thought, that's silly. I don't do that, you know, but um, it is a subconscious thing. They're dangerous. 9-11 figures hugely into my thinking. Um, You know, there's a fear. There's a huge group of Muslim girls at my university that I've never talked to, ever. I just left them alone, didn't want to have anything to do with them had really no interest. They were the enemy in a sense. Even though I, I mean, even though I knew there were people behind those, it still felt like they might be the enemy that could hurt my family. Women are taught at a young age if they do something wrong, even if it's not their fault, let's say they're raped or molested or something like that, terrible happens to them. If that's discovered, they're the ones that are blamed for that. The stories, they're terrible. They're, I mean, they're terrifying and heartbreaking because women have been not just abused physically, not just raped, not just the things that we experience here, but those things have happened to them in a culture where if they tell anyone, then they have dishonored their entire family so that the veil is on the outside But the veil trapping all those secrets in darkness as well, I mean, that's just just as painful. So they learn at a young age that they have no value. They don't have a voice. Their place is back in the shadows. Their hearts, it's like the brick wall just being laid up. And behind that wall is the real woman. But there's no way to get to her without Jesus bringing those bricks down. So how do we reach into the hearts of those women that have so shut down? How do we give those women a voice? First of all, I've learned that we have to be transparent with our own hearts, with our own lives. Initially, they're kind of like, I can't believe they're talking about this. We don't do this in our society. But then empathy kind of enters in and those defenses start dropping. Tears come from their eyes. They start leaning in. They want to hear what happened to us. 
I can't tell you how many times I have heard a woman say to me, I've never told this to anyone in my life, but this is what happened to me. And they'll start sharing their story. One of the girls asked to speak to me alone. She said that when she was younger, she was abused at the hands of somebody that still lives in her village. She said, because after what's happened to me, when I marry, I could be killed if this is found out. So she lives in fear of the person that she was abused at the hands of. Then she lives in fear of her future because she could be killed. And she has no hope. So what's been hidden in the darkness that Satan keeps them in bondage with, as soon as it comes out into the light, of course, Jesus comes in and starts healing that. He starts healing them, and they realize that they have been set free. When I went to the Not Forgotten event, it just triggered my heart that I need to step out in action. Just seeing how much the women here love that you engage with them, and even just talking to them and smiling at them, and especially when you do the foot washing, it just breaks down walls, and they just start weeping and crying, and they just, no one's ever loved them that way. I just saw these women so differently. Um, we, we met with them in their homes, and we saw them without their burkas on, and they had these gorgeous dresses on, these beautiful things, and they were beautiful women. I just have this sense of urgency that we need more people to join us. There are so many people that don't know Jesus out there, and we have the hope within us. We've got the message, and if we're not going to tell them, who's going to? We need you, because Jesus is coming back soon, and these people need to hear the gospel so that they will not go into eternity without Jesus. They were really amazing. They touched my heart as a Christian. So imagine as a Muslim woman, really neglected, how it really impacts their hearts. Reach out to these Muslim women. Let me teach you how to love them and not be afraid of them so that you can be the one to have the privilege of leading a Muslim to Christ. Why not share with these women? Find ways to bring them into your homes. Find ways to, to talk to them in the stores and make friends with them. He loves those women behind those veils. He does. <laughs> so why can't I? Wow. Powerful, huh? The Muslims are here. And they're not leaving. And God's called us to reach them. Well, what about security? What about the Syrian refugees coming in? Hey, listen. We're polarized in America politically. Any subject you talk about, one's over here, one's over here. There's no middle ground. Listen, I grew up an FBI son. We need better security. I think we need to not look at this problem through a telescope but binoculars. Two lenses. Number one, we're praying that the government will take this seriously and screen refugees better. Amen? We need that. We need that. Young Syrian Muslim men, 25 years old, could be with ISIS coming into our country. We need the government to function, have better screening. But secondly, you know what's happening in America? Too many believers are defaulting over to the government to fix the Muslim problem. It's never, we're the ones that have the light. We're the ones that have the answer. God's called us to fulfill the Great Commission. You know what? You can do that and not even leave your hometown now. There's so many people coming, and so we have this incredible opportunity. Um, recently, some women went to a Not Forgotten event, and they went back to their church in Spokane. And right after that, it was announced that um, 900 refugees were coming from Syria to live in Spokane. There were actually pastors preaching in the pulpit saying, we don't want them. We don't want them in our city. But this one church that's working with us, you know what they did? They found out the list of when the flights were coming in. 
And they went to the airport and they had signs in Arabic saying, welcome to our city. We're glad you're here. We love Jesus and we're your friends. And they gave out food and water and exchanged names. And do you know some of them are open to the gospel, coming to faith in Christ, but it's going to take a little risk, believers. We need to do this. What can I do? Let's just summarize this. What can I do? Number one, stand with believers because there's tremendous blowback in the Middle East that are in prison, persecution, and danger. Okay? How many of you have, are on Facebook? How many of you have Facebook? Okay, so this is church, you can't lie. Raise your hands, get them up. Okay, all right, a few more. Thank you. All right, so do you know that you can go on Facebook, 838, the number 830 spelled out, and 8, and it is a prayer initiative where we set our watches or phones at 838 p.m. Every time the buzzer goes off, we pray for our brothers and sisters in prison, persecution, and danger. We do that every night. Romans 8, 38, 39 is our verse. For, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We want our family on the front lines to know we're with them. Paul said this, if one of us suffers, we what? All suffer. We may not be called to it, but we've got to stand with them. So if you go on Facebook and like it, you will get instant real-time updates from North Korea, Syria, Egypt, things that are happening that you can pray about. And some of the believers, when it's safe, will even respond to some of the things that you say. We have about 19,500 that are our prayer army doing that. We want you guys to join that. If you can get on Facebook. If you can't, there's an app you can get on your phone. You can look it up. Eight, the number 30 and eight. Okay. Two, ask yourself the two questions. I mean, we have to be honest. And all of our leaders throughout the Middle East are extremely honest with Muslims that come to faith in Christ. And they tell them they have to be able to answer these two questions before they receive Jesus. Number one, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? your savior. Are you willing to suffer for him? Because you may suffer at the hands of your family. They may be so disgraced that they even want to do something terrible. And that leads us to the second question. Are you willing to die for Jesus? And they say, yes. Well, I live in America. I'm protected by the government. I'm protected. You know what? Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. This is about the war on Jesus. This is what this is, guys. It's the war on Jesus. There's persecution. Am I willing to be persecuted? Am I willing to die for Jesus? Three, pray for God's heart for lost uh, believer, for lost people. If we are afraid of them or hate them or marginalize them, we're not going to make a difference. Listen, here's something we can do. Every Muslim you see when you walk by, would you just... Utter a prayer, Lord Jesus, let him meet you. Let him meet a believer that will love them. Maybe it's going to be me. Let him get a Bible. Let him have a dream about Jesus. Every time you go by a mosque, if you drive by one, just pray, Lord, everyone that enters that house of Islam, would you reveal yourself to them? We're praying for that. We're praying for 100 million Muslims to come to faith in Christ globally. So pray for God's heart for the lost, for the lost. And the last thing is become desperate. Become desperate. There's a friend of mine that was working in Syria with an unreached people group. And after two years, nothing happened. It's a big group within Syria. 
That's the Druze community. Nothing happened. He is a missionary there and nothing's happened. So finally, he decided, I got to just seek God and just pray. And he got on his face and started just praying. You know what? I want to tell you, Apple didn't invent FaceTime. Believers have been doing it for centuries when they were desperate for God to move. They got on their face, and he did. And it ended up that God moved and blew open the doors, and people have come to faith in Christ. Do I have time for a story? Are we late? We're close. We're, we're there. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll end with this. So it ends up that uh, people are coming to faith in Christ, but he got on his face and he was before God and, and God moved. So we moved from Colorado to Dallas after 20 years living in Colorado, nice and cool, Dallas, ugh, hot, humid, and it was July and I was at the mission office. I wasn't traveling, got done. And I ended up that um, was going to pick up my wife, Joanne. We were going to have a dinner, and everything had gone wrong that day. I was late, just didn't feel like I got a lot done. Got in the car. It's like 180 out in Dallas. And I drive off and get on the freeway, and I look at the dash, and it says six miles till empty. And I went, man, are you kidding me? Okay, Lord, nothing's going right. So I pull off three stations. Here's one right here. So I went up, put my card in. It says, must see cashier. So can I just say I was not in the spirit at that point? And I just said, Lord, can I get a break, please? So I walk in, plunk down my card. Woman walks up. She's a Muslim, and she's from the Middle East. And I said, whoa, you're from the Middle East? I go there all the time, and, and we, we work with your people and love them. And where are you from? And she goes, well, if you go to the Middle East all the time, you're going to have to guess. I said, oh, okay, Egypt. She says, nope, Saudi Arabia. Whoa. So we're talking, getting this conversation. And I said, hey, I, I want to... Um, give you something. I'm a writer and I wrote something about your people. God is honoring your people. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I wrote a book about it. I'm sure you never heard about it, but Jesus is coming to Muslims in dreams and visions. And she said, you wrote a book about that? And I said, yeah. And she goes, because I've been having dreams about Jesus. So I said, excuse me a minute. Forgive me, God, for that crack. I get it now. I, I understand why I'm here, why I'm late and all that. I ran out the car, gave it to her, took off. We got to the dinner. We were on time. Came back a couple days later, getting gas, stuck my card in the pump. And it worked perfectly, the same pump. See, I don't think it was a card malfunction. I think it was an order from God. It didn't say, please see cashier. It said, must see cashier. So I walked in, and there she is. We are reading the book, and she goes, this book is a picture of my life. And I said, what do you mean? Are the dreams not recent? And she said, no, I've been having dreams about Jesus for over 40 years. I said, you're kidding me. Did you ever talk to a Christian? I mean, this is Dallas, Texas. There's plenty of them. Go to a church. She goes, I went to plenty of them. But everybody seemed afraid of me. Maybe it's because I was a Muslim. And I just knew this. Jesus was so tender and loved me in the dreams. I, I knew this in my heart, that if he loved me that much, one of these days he was coming for me. And I said, Rawia, I think today is that day. And right then, shared the gospel. She grabbed my hands. We prayed, and Rawia came to faith in Christ in the FINA gas station right there. Amazing God. Is God amazing? She loves him today. And I share that story because I was being an idiot that day, consumed with my stuff, my schedule. I'm serving you, Lord. Here's this woman who's been searching for 40 years. You know what? There are plenty of Ruiz in our community. Let's love them like Jesus would. They're waiting for us. We are not afraid. We are not angry. We do not hate them. Jesus loves them. Let's go get them. 
thank you for letting me be here today.